Hi, TPC. I'm Ben White, and I was an intern at your church some years ago. I actually spoke to you last summer. Uh, I now teach at the King's College in New York City, and I'm very happy to be speaking to you again today uh, from the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, we're covering today one of the most important passages in the whole letter. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I know you've been working your way through the letter, and you probably know that the first half offers a lot of theology about Jesus and the church. Paul has been talking about Jesus Christ's rule and reign over all of creation, how he has reconciled us to God and given us an identity that is found in him, not in the world. But Paul hasn't said too much just yet about how we're supposed to respond. It's been all about receiving the grace of God before responding to God. The order matters. It's the difference between moralism and gospel, the difference between the church and secular humanism. But then you get to our passage today at the beginning of chapter 4, and there's a sudden change. This is the literary theme of Ephesians, the place where Paul begins to describe our response to God's good work. And there's one particular action that he has in mind. We'll get to that in a moment when we read the whole text. But before we do, let's just look at the beginning. Look at the text, the beginning of chapter 4 in the letter to the Ephesians. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With the therefore, Paul takes the full force of everything he has said so far and applies it to this moment. He just finished his prayer in chapter 3, noting that God's power is at work in the church. But here, he isn't concerned about outside threats to this power. He, he's not pointing the finger at the slippery slope of our culture. He's not concerned about governmental interference. He's not trying to start a culture war. In Ephesians, the greatest threat to the church is the church itself. And the greatest threat to the church is the church itself because we so often forget our mission. That's why Paul turns to us. That's why he's addressing us. The you here, I urge you, is plural. Our passage today is answering the question, what is the fundamental task of our life together? What must we do to be Christians together? Paul isn't talking about the broader vision of the church. He did that earlier in the letter. He's not talking about your individual calling or vocation. It's about our communal task. And we are so prone to forget this task today. We live in a world where the individual reigns supreme. Authenticity, self-actualization, to thine own self be true, as they say. It's only gotten worse in the pandemic. Though it's necessary, we don't see each other much anymore. Locked away in our homes, growing more attached to our own way of life. My TV shows, my routine, my version of reality. It's striking that some of the biggest anti-maskers and COVID deniers are people who haven't lost anyone to this disease. 
more than ever, we struggle to see beyond our little patch of planet Earth. As William Willimon recently reflected, we're all in this together was a slogan in the early days of the pandemic. Then came the statistics of the deaths from COVID-19 saying, no, we're not. Some die, others survive, essential workers are disproportionately affected. The world rages. Debate about lockdowns and vaccines are everywhere. And God's call to the church in the midst of this chaos is this. Be faithful to your calling. The church must be the church. That's it. We get in trouble whenever we try to be anything other than that. But we cannot be the church without unity. Let me show you that in our passage. Paul said in verse 1, be faithful to your calling. We just looked at that. Then verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There it is. The first command following Paul's presentation of the gospel in Ephesians is to be unified. He then goes on to justify his comment, saying, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with this text today asking that your spirit would speak through it. Show us your son, Jesus. Show us the importance of this passage at the seam of Ephesians, the transition from talking about the things done for us in Christ to the things that we are to do in response to Christ. God, I pray uh, that you'd open our eyes to the importance of this task of the church for our world. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. On March 7th, 1965, a group of civil rights marchers, many of them Christians, set off from Selma, Alabama, marching along U.S. Highway 80 to demonstrate the desire of African Americans in that state to exercise their right to vote. Joining hands, singing songs, united in their quest for freedom. This group was met at the Edmund Pettus Bridge by a wall of state troopers. Although the protesters carried no weapons, made no threats, the ensuing scene accurately depicted in the recent movie Selma came to be known as Bloody Sunday. Law enforcement officers beat and severely injured many of the protesters in an effort to disperse the crowd. That day, the state broke their bodies, but it didn't completely break their spirit. Their cause was too important, too essential. The civil rights movement continued, united, and it changed the world. That is, in many ways, a perfect description of the theology of Ephesians. It presents a cosmic vision of the gospel. 
Paul says that the world is controlled by evil powers, spiritual beings often manifesting themselves in institutions and individuals. They work for division, for violence, for injustice. Thankfully, Jesus, the true king, has conquered the powers at the cross. In their bloodlust, the powers beat and bruise Jesus, killing him, and in doing so, they put themselves in God's debt because they killed a perfect, flawless man. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension is the beginning of a new age that continues to break into the world through the church. We have been raised with Christ, and we are now stewards of this coming age. In chapter 2, Paul said that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, between believers of different cultures and races, has been destroyed by Jesus. Jesus didn't found an exclusive country club. He founded the church. And against the violence and division of the powers of this world, the church is to stand out as a place where everyone belongs, everyone can find community, because everyone can have faith in Jesus. Not only that, but because we have been raised with Christ, because we are with him and he is with us, there is nothing that can separate us from God, and there is nothing that should separate us from each other. You have been raised together with Christ to be united together for the sake of the world. The purpose of our community, united in belief and practice, is to be assigned to the powers that be. This age is ending. A new order is dawning. Jesus is on the move. Can you see him? I catch glimpses of Jesus from time to time in the church. One of them comes from the best-selling book, Amish Grace, which recounts the real-life tragedy at West Nickel Mine School in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, in 2006. An armed man entered the building one October morning, killing five students before turning the gun on himself. As the media descended on the site, the story was initially about the shooter. But as responses from the community began to pour in, dominated by the Amish and Brethren Christians who had lost loved ones, the media quickly began to focus on them. One community leader said, and I quote, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive, and not only to reach out to those who have suffered a loss, but to reach out to the family of the man who committed these acts. Wow. Forgiveness for the perpetrator, expressions of concern for the one group most likely to be overlooked, the perpetrator's family. The responses became a media sensation. There is power in unity, friends. When Christians are united in our faith and practice, when we actually do together the things that God asks of us, the world takes notice. This is nothing short of what Jesus promised. 
In his final prayer in the Gospel of John, Jesus prays, May they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The greatest apologetic for the Christian faith is unity with other believers. You have been raised together with Christ to be united together for the sake of the world. But what does this unity actually look like? When Paul says that we should seek the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, he doesn't offer much explanation. It's telling, though, that just before, in verse 2, he says that our calling to unity should be pursued with love, humility, and patience. In other words, our unity as believers doesn't begin with an external structure. It begins with a movement of the heart. Love is what creates unity. It is the essential ingredient. You might be able to form a community on common interest. You might be able to coerce people to be unified, but where there is love, there is always unity. As Harold Honer says, unity without love is possible, but love without unity is not. This is why unity is so important, friends. Unity leaks into everything. It should be the result of your love for one another. It is also a solution to judgmental attitudes, to gossip, to division in the church. Unity means to support other believers, care for them, empathize, seek to agree with them as much as possible. The last thing our world needs is more unnecessary controversy. How do you achieve unity, practically speaking? Well, it involves discerning whether or not a particular disagreement is essential. It involves moving towards one another in love as much as possible. As the saying goes, in essentials, unity. In doubtful matters, liberty. In all things, charity. Did you catch that? I'll say it again. In essentials, unity. In doubtful matters, liberty. In all things, charity. We contend with one another when an essential is in question. Our beliefs and practices as defined by scripture and guided by the Christian tradition. We otherwise lay down our swords. In fact, it's a good spiritual litmus test to ask yourself, how often do I view a brother or sister poorly for something that isn't essential for the Christian faith? You judge them for their preferences, for their opinions. Maybe they hold quite radical or wrong-headed views and you should be skeptical. Or maybe if you find that almost everyone around you is foolish you need to rein in some of your opinions and cultivate unity with other believers. Now, so far I've said that there's a power in unity. I think you're tracking with that, particularly in showing the world the love and power of God. But how does the power of unity work in our lives as believers? I wanna talk briefly about three things that unity produces in our lives. First, our identity is found in unity. 
This is clear in our passage and throughout Ephesians, since Paul never addresses you in the singular, except when he's referring to passages from the Old Testament where he's, he's quoting and the, the decision was already made for him. Whenever he uses a pronoun, it's in the plural. You, all of you, have been raised with Christ. You, all of you, need to pursue unity. To be a Christian at all requires relationship. This can create problems for us as individually minded Westerners. Unlike other cultures, including some cultures that exist today in Asia and Africa, we have championed the individual. You can see it even in children. Two plus two equals four, the parent might say. But in my world, the child responds, it's five. There's a dodging of authority, a resistance to seeing the truth as anything other than what you think the truth is. But in the church, we're called to listen to others, to accept authority. And here's the thing. Unity isn't just something you do. No, 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 no. It's not just an exercise. It's a part of who you are. You become more yourself as a person united to Christ when you fellowship with other believers. Notice what Paul says, verse 3, you are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It has already been achieved for you by Christ at the cross. Paul isn't asking you to move mountains to be unified. He's asking you to remember the mountains that have already been moved to make you one body. Your identity, who you already are, is found in unity. It is so essential. It's not optional. It's not a thing we do sometimes. It's a part of who we are. That's why Paul says, be eager or make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And there's the irony of the Christian folks today who protest the closer of our church buildings to save lives. They want to keep meeting together, they say. They want to maintain the unity of the Spirit, they say. And how can we do that without meeting together? That's their question. But they don't seem to notice the division they're creating or the fact that very few of the brothers and sisters they're united to are explicitly supportive of their action. Now, eventually, yes, we'll need to meet together again. But in the meantime, do you really think the only way that Christians maintain unity is by meeting together? Besides, most of us, we, we come to church, we sit down with our families, we listen to the service, we get up and leave. What a cheap form of unity. Talk on the phone, text each other, offer a drive-by hello, be a part of each other's lives outside the four walls of the church. The shutdown is not completely stopping you from doing that. Now notice where Paul goes next, verse 4. He begins to justify this call to unity by listing basic elements of Christian confession. The very things that should draw us together. Notice the consistency. We should be one because there is one body and one spirit. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. With the last one, keep this in mind, Paul is especially thinking of the name into which you were baptized, not necessarily the mode of baptism. Ritual washing was common in the Roman world. Some converts to Christianity knew the baptism of repentance initiated by John the Baptist. Here, Paul reminds the Ephesians that they were all baptized into the name of Jesus. The focus here is Jesus. The Spirit works to reveal Jesus in the church. The church serves only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When we are unified, that consistency reveals Christ. Our unity helps us to see him better. The Summer Olympics are finally happening this summer in Tokyo, at least we can hope. And one of my favorite events is basketball. With 21 players in the NBA from Canada, maybe this will be the year that Canada qualifies for the Olympics and maybe even takes home a medal. Either way, I love watching the team-oriented nature of international basketball. They're representing their country. Egos are set aside. It's about honor, sportsmanship, team play. But now, imagine a basketball team, or, or any team sport for that matter, with only one player. It wouldn't work, would it? Or what if there were multiple players, but they're all the same kind of player? They'd have a team, but maybe all they do is shoot. No dunking, no passing, no inside play, no rebounding. What an awful team that would be. The beauty, the power of the game would be gone. It's the same with the church. With one exceptional individual, you might see something of Jesus, but it's in a community, united together, working together, that something special takes shape. And that makes sense. There is one Lord who created us. Each of us declares his image. The body of the church, then, with all of its personalities and ethnicities, shows us different sides of the one Lord Jesus. Our diversity, our community, helps us to know God in a more complete way. Some of you might say, but that's never happened to me. Some of you have been hurt by the church. But more often than not, I think it's a particular individual or a fraction of the congregation, a particular clique that does the damage. And that's why, brothers and sisters, unity is so important. When we stray from the basics, when we forget that the church is to be the church, and we start doing more than that, we start majoring on the minors, we start preaching something more than one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we lose people. We hurt people. Our unity reveals Jesus, but our disunity may suggest that we never knew him in the first place. Finally, look at how this passage ends. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul reminds us of where our lives are heading. It all comes back to the Father, the one who sent Jesus, the one who sent the Spirit, the one who created this world and who will bring about the new heavens and the new earth. He is over all and through all and in all. The powers rage, the nations plot in vain, and one day all will be revealed. And what will stand? You know the answer. Unity. The unity of the one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the one church filled with millions of people, our unity here and now gives us a glimpse of the world to come. This would have spoken so powerfully to the Ephesians, whose city was well known in the ancient world as the home of the temple of Artemis, the goddess of the wilderness, animals, and the moon in the Roman imagination. The temple was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the, the temple in Ephesus. The Christian
Christians in this city would have been reminded of its presence every day. Artemis worshipers were everywhere. We're told in Acts that when Paul entered the city preaching the gospel, it started a riot because of the threat that the message posed to the Artemis cult. Here Paul reminds the Ephesians, reminds us, that there are so many so-called powers in this world, but there is only one Lord, one Father over all. And because there is only one, there can be only one outcome eventually. Your future is secure, so be faithful to your calling. And your calling is not to outrage, not to engage the powers on their own terms. As Carl Henry once said, the early church did not say, look at what the world has come to. They said, look at what has come into the world. Christ has entered the world and brought us together to show the global community a different kind of community, one that is strong, powerful, and full of grace. You have been raised together with Christ to be united together for the sake of the world. Let's pray. Father, the one Father of all, our Father, we call on you in the name of your Son, Jesus. We ask that by your Spirit, you would secure the message of this text in our lives, not as individuals, not as autonomous actors, but as a community, united not necessarily together by our physical presence, but by our common calling to worship your Son, to live in unity, bounded together by the love that you give us through your Spirit. God, I pray for this church, Temple Baptist in Cambridge, Ontario, that in this congregation, the world would see unity. And in seeing unity, it would see power. And God, I pray not just for Temple, but for every church in Cambridge and in Waterloo Region and in Ontario and in Canada and in North America and in this world. God, make us dream big. Help us to be united together with our brothers and sisters around the world. That as you said through your son, that they would see that we are one, and in seeing that, know that you have sent us, that you live in us, that your love is made complete in our love for each other. God, I pray that you would help us now this week to seek unity with our brothers and sisters. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>